I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Now, this is the part where I usually say, check this out, but my guest today is not an actor, and he's not a musician, so we're going to use an audio riddle to reveal who the guest is. Now, an audio riddle is kind of like those emoji riddles that you see. You know, there's like a pickle, a heart, a car, a copy of Death in Venice, I don't know, a giraffe, a panda, and you're like, oh, it's George Clooney. Okay? All right, let's give it a shot. Check this out. So has decided not to risk another booking here unless absolutely necessary. A lovely feat from Ratchford and touched in by Pogba, who suddenly can't help himself. Marcus Rashford with rubber-limbed brilliance and Pogba where he had to be. United flying from the start. Any guesses at this point? Or is that just not enough information? I know it's not enough. If you uh, if you know who I'm talking to, you're an absolute genius just based on that little clip. So let's keep going. Check this out. song so much it's hard to turn it down but we have to get to business my guest today on the program is the author and sports writer wayne barton and he's considered by many to be the leading writer on manchester united now the football clip and the stone roses bit makes sense right well i'm glad you can see that you can probably also see why the audio riddles have fast become the least popular segment on this program but enough of this nonsense let me tell you a little bit about Wayne Barton. Everything I know about morality and the obligations of men, Albert Camus once wrote, I owe it to football. I suppose Wayne Barton probably feels the same. Barton got his start as a sports writer, and his coverage of football immediately distinguished itself from, well, pretty much everyone else. His prose was precise and perfectly calibrated, and his descriptions powerful and shimmering with clarity. Not only that, but his enthusiasm for each moment of the game was revelatory, and it didn't take long for Barton's gift to be noticed. Barton began ghostwriting biographies for famous footballers, and along the way, he worked with soccer legends like Harry Gregg, Ron Atkins, Alex Stepney, and Sir Alex Ferguson. And speaking of Ferguson, Barton emerged from the ghostwriting shadow for 2014's Fergie's Fledglings, a comprehensive record of Manchester United's youth system under Sir Alex Ferguson. The book was hailed by the Guardian as vibrant and essential. Meanwhile, 2015-74-75 found the Independent declaring Barton to be the leading writer on Manchester United. Barton then decided to diversify and enter the world of novels. His next two books, Coal House and Mablethorpe, were equally chilling. All right, so there's all the fruits of Barton's literary labor. But we're here today to talk about one very specific fruit 
and that's his new book, Peach. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what the book Peach is about. Following the untimely passing of a close friend, British songwriter and producer Freddie Ward arrives in Bliss, Idaho to work on a comeback album with beloved singer-songwriter Hal Granger. Adrift and bereft, Freddie is looking to gain a sense of perspective after a series of bad decisions, decisions that cost him his relationship and life as he knows it. However, almost as soon as Freddie arrives in Idaho, Hal drops an unexpected and devastating bombshell. Far from the hustle and bustle of his life in England, out in the stark isolation of the northwestern United States with time to think and reflect, Freddie slowly begins to rebuild his life. But he's haunted by both the events of the recent past and his reactions to them. Through words of wisdom from Hal and a series of meandering, existential, and profound conversations, Peach explores themes such as love, loss, loyalty, and friendship, second chances, and redemption, and how to make the most of your time, and last but not least, the meaning of home. Now, I lifted that straight from the Peach press kit, but here's my own quote about the book. Peach is not only an instant classic. Yeah, I'm actually quoting myself. Uh, it's one of the great rock and roll novels of all time. It's a book about last chances, second chances, friendship, deception, and grief. But most of all, it's about what happens when the demolished heart soars again and starts blasting away like a kick drum. Okay, hang on a second. I'm just going to text my therapist. Quoted myself on my own podcast do you have time tomorrow uh okay let's get to our interview with wayne barton by the way peach has its own soundtrack you know who did the soundtrack the actor charles baker you might know him from breaking bad i'll let wayne barton explain enjoy this conversation with me and wayne barton right here on stereo embers the podcast I guess I had an idea to write something maybe around 2005, 2006, but um, I, I put that into a screenplay and I wasn't a very good screenwriter. I wasn't a professional or anything like that. Um, but I put the story down into a screenplay and really I, that got rejected. It was part of like um, BBC um, ad, uh, a program here called Write, Writer's Room or something and you sent it through and um, they would get back to you whether or not you know they accepted or whether or not they um, passed and they passed and I didn't it wasn't so much I had my confidence notes but that was my first sort of big leap into creative writing and I was working full-time in, in a different day job at the time and it just sort of got put on the back burner really and then 2012 I started writing fiction non-fiction books um, sports books and I think a couple of years after that, um, I had the idea, well, because I had the good fortune to have a few of those published, I thought, well, I want to try and do something different every year with writing to keep it fresh so I don't take it for granted. And one of those um, sort of resolutions ended with me writing a fiction story. And I, I didn't really have any ideas of getting it published or anything, but I sent it to a publisher for feedback. And she said that she loved it and wanted to publish it, which I, I guess would never happen, really. It's like a million to one chance that something like that would happen. Right. And so from that fortune, really, I thought, well, 
that was effectively it was a novella that I wrote, and I thought, well, if if that's good enough to catch the eye of someone to be published, she actually said, what else have you have you got? And the only thing that I had as an idea was Peach. So I thought, oh, well, do you know what? I'll, I'll write it as a novel and see how it goes. And yeah, so that was 2015 when I started writing it. And it's had a few revisions since then and a few few different drafts. But yeah, it's um, been a bit of a, a long journey for this for this story. Yeah. What, um, in terms of the the genesis of the idea, where did it come from? The, the I think you know I loved movies like Lost in Translation and Almost Famous and, and and stories like that. A sort of idea of being lost and wanting to find yourself, which I, I guess is like one of those coming of age tropes that all writers like to tell. And I guess the solidification of the idea came through working as a ghostwriter with different people and even about their stories and the things that they went through. And I would always find myself thinking, as you generally do as a, you know, passerby in a conversation or, you know, the the other guy listening to something that you're not really a, a participant in it as a ghostwriter, you're listening to it and sort of interjecting with questions from about that are necessary to their situation and relevant to, to what they went through. But you always find yourself thinking, how would I react in that situation? And think, and, you know, and, and you sort of, extrapolate that and then it becomes its own idea and you you put these ideas into different conversations and I, I guess that's where it came from really just the idea of all these different things that were bubbling away and I, I felt like I had something to say do you know what I mean I, I guess that's the the big cliche as any writer is oh well I feel I've got something to say now so I better go ahead and say it and I, I think that's what <laughs> came from really is, is listening a lot to, to all these interesting people and thinking do you know these deep things that people are telling me maybe there's a way that I can relate that might be interesting to someone tell me because I'm, I'm sure my audience is is curious like we always hear the term ghostwriter and I don't even yeah. know if anyone ever actually defines it can you talk a bit about what that actually is and how you got into it Okay, I, I see a lot of mentions about it these days. It's somewhat derisory because if a celebrity has written a book and someone will always say, oh, oh I bet they had a ghostwriter as if um, it means less. <laughs> but for me, um, I always work, it's, it's essentially like a co-author thing. If in my, in my line of work, where I got into it was um, working with soccer players in the UK. So... They would generally be with the, the team that I supported, Manchester United, and I, I reached out to people I was fortunate enough to interview and asked them if they wanted to write their own, you know, if they wanted to work on their autobiography. And it would be like, effectively, very long interview is how I try and sell it to them if, if they're reluctant at all, which some people are, because some people... I guess everyone needs their ego scratching a little bit, don't they? Um, but some people need coercing into a little bit to sort of say, yeah, your story's interesting enough to tell. And, yeah, it's like it works a little bit like an interview. You, The world's longest interview, you try and get everything about their life you're sitting through. I, I've become close friends with everyone that I've worked with and because you can't help but be like that. And so it's a lot, it's a lot more deep for me than I guess it might be for for other people who, who see it as a job and a process of just 
working with someone, getting them to tell you bits about their life story. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that there are people who embellish um, stories to try and get boost the word count or to try and make it more interesting, but I've always been of the belief that, you know, it's got to be the story of the the person that you're working with totally yeah obviously you know i'm not discounting my own role in that completely i mean my writing style comes into it and and the way that i interpret situations really is the way that sometimes those things get translated onto the page um but yeah it's, it's i guess it's different for everyone isn't it it's that every creative process is a bit different and i Perhaps, perhaps stupidly, I mean, I read autobiographies and I'm, not, you know, I'm a big fan of them and I never found myself thinking, oh, I wonder how the ghostwriter for this helped, you know, their, what their processes were. And perhaps that's a little bit foolish and naive on my part. And when I got into it, I thought, well, I can do this, no, <laughs> no problem. With, no, with, with. And, and thankfully, you know what, so, what it's, so far it's worked out pretty well. Um and I think, and and now I'm at the point where I've, I've, you know, I've written more than half a dozen. And I'm thinking I, I'm, the feedback's pretty good on most of them, so there's no need to revise what I'm doing, apart from you know my natural development and learning and reading more and everything like that. But I, I almost feel like it would be dangerous to tap into, you know, what does a ghostwriter do and what is the best thing for a ghostwriter to do? Do you know what I mean? Googling that sort of stuff. I try and right. keep away from it because I, I feel like it's it'd be too dangerous to. I mean, if I get terrible reviews um, on the next one that I do, perhaps I, I might well do that. Go back to the drawing board, but you know, touch wood, it hasn't happened yet. So no, I mean, I think you're doing fine. I mean, how? Just out of curiosity, how does one fall into that line of work? I mean, I'm sure uh, it was it one of those things where I mean, it was never the plan. Um, but it sort of just did it fall in your lap? Like, how did that actually happen? Yeah, so that, that's the craziest thing, right? So I was working. Um, it's not crazy; it's pretty mundane, but it's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a really crazy story. It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, so I was—I always wanted to be an author, and then you find yourself again constricted by the day job and everything like that, which is wasn't a writer at the time. But I was running um, a soccer website, and I had good connections because I knew some of the older players who used to work for for the club. And one of them, I was, uh, you know, I was interviewing for for the website, and I thought no one's ever, you know, in doing your research and everything like that for the for the people, they've got a book. You would read a little bit or, or try and find out a little bit about it to help them promote it. But I noticed that this this particular guy he was called Brian Greenoff. He didn't have um, a book out, and I I just thought I, it was literally the night before the interview. I said to my wife just as we get ready for bed, I just said, Do "You know what? I, I think I might ask him if if he wants to work with me on his book." And she said, "Oh, well, yeah, all right. Pigs might fly as well." But um, I, I asked him and. And yeah, he was a little bit reluctant at first because I mean, at that time he was 59. He thought he was a little bit over the hill to to um, to be inter- of interest to readers. But the, he came from a period in the the mid 1970s where that was a particular interest for Manchester United, but massively successful football club um, the world over. Everyone knows who they are, but that was a particularly dark time for the club. And I thought, well, that will be of interest. And you know, thankfully it was. He, he said yes. He wanted to work from uh, work on it, and then 
it was kind of like it snowballed from there. So one of the guys that um, did the foreword for it, uh, one of the introductions for him in the book, he wanted to do his book. And simply through um, through that connection, I've got a second book. Do you know what I mean? And it's literally it's that kind of thing that's worked from, from there, particularly in soccer. And then, you know, my reputation fortunately grew because then, because I had a couple of ghostwritten books behind me, I was able to approach a publisher and say, hey, I've got an, an original idea for that's not a ghostwritten book. It's my own thing that I want to write. Would you be interested? And they said, you know, because I had the, had the good fortune of having those books behind me, they were more willing to listen. And, um, yeah, it's um, that was 2013. And, and yeah, it's it's been crazy ever since. I mean, you you kind of you know you paid your dues as a writer, and people knew that. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and I think the the good thing on on the soccer front is that I'm a complete nerd for everything historical. So, and I'll do a lot of research. Of, you know about I mean, Manchester United are one of those clubs where, like, I guess like you know like the Chicago Bulls or the Yankees, you know, the the history of them is sort of fabled on itself you know and everyone wants to look up about the everything that's happened to, to that team in in the past so and I'm certainly like that for my club and um yeah so I was I got books and books of of them and I hate to say you just I, it's just one of those things where becoming a nerd or being a nerd about something as its value <laughs> at some point, you know, people start seeing it as a, as a good thing rather than, Oh my God, he's um, wasting his time reading about football again. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. some people think, Oh wow, that's actually interesting. And you never quite know when that point is, but um, sometimes, you know, it does come. So trust me, if anyone's reading and they think that they're too much of a nerd about something, <laughs> stick with it. You know, there might, there'll be some value in it uh, eventually. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, if you plunge yourself into something, there is really no way out. You should just keep going through, keep going further. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't, don't dig up whatever. Just keep digging down, you know, like, as they say on the Simpsons, dig up stupid. Don't do that. Just keep digging. Having grown up in California in the Bay area, when I, when I was growing up in, in high school, like in the eighties, it was, yeah. it was one of those things where if you were into music, you weren't into sports and yeah. you know, it was, it was very polarized and you could tell by looking at somebody what their record collection was at home. Um, yeah. you could just tell. And so, which was kind of cool. It was a kind of tribalism and it was kind of cool because you kind of knew where everyone stood. And then there were moments of intersection where you'd go see an American band and they'd be wearing a Yankees hat or a, or a, um, you know, you might see them wearing like a Jersey, uh, you know, like a a basketball Jersey or something. And, but for the most part, there was not really a huge intersection between those two. And I think that started and it certainly changed now. Now there is, um, but but Nick Hornby is one of those first guys to sort of be like I'm an avid sports fan and an avid music fan, and you started to see those things meld together. I think in the, in the '90s, um, yeah. th- this isn't even really a question; it's just more of an observation. But I know it's different. It's always been different in the UK because I know, having grown up as a Stone Roses fan, those guys were always talking about their favorite club. But you know, th- I mean, it was very clear they were sports fans too. So I'm curious: was your experience growing up, you know, in Sheffield? Was it was it much different than mine? Because it sounds like it was in terms of like loving sports and loving music. 
Well, no, do you know what? I think it actually came full circle for me. As a child, like I was into not so much music, but certainly writing. And I think even my, my grandma, who, who passed away last year, she had um, she had a poem of mine that I wrote, uh, I think probably age nine or ten. And it was a, a purely embarrassing poem, but it was like all about, you know, how I hope that the world will have peace and love forever. Proper John Lennon style, you know, like, <laughs> the, very, the very naive words of a nine-year-old. And, and the last word didn't rhyme, but it fit really badly into the poem. And I, I always cringed whenever I saw it. But she always had it in a bedroom, which was a nice touch. But the, the thing is that I was always into that as a, as a kid. And then I, I think... Um, you know, I was bullied quite a lot in, I guess, the equivalent of high school. And you sort of do what you can to fit in. And at that time, fitting in was um, football, soccer over here was going through. It was 93, 92. That time um, was coming through like a particular popular, um, one of the major sports networks over here basically bought or invested heavily into one of the leagues and it um, got a lot of public attention. So that became like the, the thing what all all teenage boys were into. Um, but I mean, that, that phase, I mean, it wasn't really a phase. I'm still into soccer now, but sure, the late 90s, I mean, I was always, always into music, you know, the Britpop thing of Oasis and Blur and everything like that. We were into that pulp, obviously pulp from my hometown, Sheffield. Um so I was into that, and um, the late 90s, um, the late 90s had some great music coming from um, the from the States, which I got really into, you know, Google Dolls, Matchbox 20, New Radicals, I mean, they had one record, Greg Alexander, who's, I mean, Greg Alexander is one of my favourite songwriters, and he mainly writes, I guess, pop songs now for pop artists, but I mean, then I got really, really into music, so I mean, at the age of 18, I was learning to play E minor and G on, on the guitar, which is about, probably just about all I can play now, actually. But, um, yeah, but yeah, the, the experience is typically the same. I, I don't think it's to the extremes as what it's painted in, like, things like Saved by the Bell, where you've got preppies and jokes or anything. But you certainly had those kind of things where, particularly our area of, of where we, we grew up as a working-class area, it's kind of kind of frowned upon to be creative do you know what I mean it's you've got to be athletic or you've got to be um a construction worker or something like that you can't there's nothing valued from being creative which is kind of ironic considering that we grew up about five miles away from where the arctic monkeys um (laughs) were formed so yeah but it was always like that it was a bit a bit difficult so you were discouraged from being creative because there was no no value in it so you had to be a little bit insular or introverted really to to I guess embrace that in yourself you know because otherwise you would have it not beaten out of you but you'd be too embarrassed to admit it really in in the social circles because the social circles around here weren't quite um you didn't have big performing arts groups or anything like that you know and bands in schools weren't really a thing either so Sheffield sounds like a lot of tough guys floating around Sheffield. <laughs> no, a lot of people who think they're tough guys, but it's not, not really. It's, I think that it's just a thing of perhaps, perhaps more an accurate way of describing it would be to say that 
it'd be fear of failure, so don't try anything. Do you know what I mean? At 13 or 14, don't express yourself because you'll be embarrassed. And that was the fear, the embarrassment, or at least that's how it felt for me. I, I don't know how it was for anyone else. I think that's probably why for that period of my life, I was more repressed within myself rather than, I, like I said, I always wanted to be a writer. Like my, I think year seven, which is 11 or 12, uh, age 11 or 12, um, my, my end of year report was, I don't care what I am or what I do when I'm older as long as I'm an author. And that's what it literally said on my first ever school report. And my mum showed me that about three years ago. And I was like, wow, yeah, okay. Well, pretty strong-willed back then, but I, somewhere yeah, it just, yeah. it just, um, yeah, like I said, it came full circle, really, which is pretty good. I mean, it's it's weird how that happened for me to actually use the fiction, uh, the non-fiction writing as a vehicle to get into fiction, which is pretty weird, really. But um, I'm glad that it, glad that it happened that way. I mean, people said that they wish they they can turn the clock back and and do things differently, but. Um, considering you can't do that you've got to be thankful for the blessings and the way that things work out if, if you're happy with the way that things are anyway when you were working on the book and you and you hit the wall you know every artist um whether you're a writer or an actor or uh, you know a musician there's always that moment where you kind of hit the wall when you had your toughest moments on while you were working on peach did you have that sort of um that kind of sheffield uh, worry in your head of well, better not to try than if you're not going to be if it's not going to be perfect. In other words, the thing you were just saying did that did that sort of haunt you a little bit? No, do you know what? It never did. I, I think the the hardest things were because there's a lot of grief in the book, and I started writing the I, the idea for the story sort of April 2015 uh, when when my the, the person who eventually became a publisher for for my first novella asked me if I had anything else to write. So I started writing that. And right around the same time, and then that was the idea. I mean, the idea in the story had always been that there would be a couple, uh, without wanting to give spoilers away to, to listeners, but that there'd be a cancer storyline in there. Uh, and it was a specific type of cancer because of the, the time it, it took and everything like that. So that was always always planned in there. And then within, within a space of a few weeks, my father-in-law was sadly diagnosed with cancer as well, and and it was a particularly aggressive form, and it, it took him really quickly. And I was writing throughout that entire period, so it was you know like life imitating art in a way, and and so that was really the hardest part. But because I was fairly new to fiction writing, and I and I think probably mostly because. I had the full idea of the story beforehand, you know, because it existed for so long. There was never a time where I had a writer's block because I, I always had something to write and I always had an escape. Um, I always had something to escape from, I should say, because life was so tough at the time. And so I, I never had the, the block in that sense. But yeah, I mean, sometimes there were days where I could write one sentence because of the subject matter of what I was writing about. If I knew it was going to particularly be a particularly tough day, I would just write one sentence and just walk away from it, you know, because it was too real and too raw. But never, I mean, sure, I've had writing blocks since in, in the more traditional sense, but not, strangely enough, not for that story. I don't remember. It was one fluid 
mostly fluid experience apart from those difficult times um but those were the emotionally difficult times if you get what i mean so it was more like i think six weeks of solid writing to get the manuscript in a very crude state and then um probably i mean i probably had writer's block in the revision um state many times you know because i mean you're going over something that you've written and you, it's very difficult to be an outsider to something that you've already written when that's what people want you to do. They want you to look back at things objectively and it's almost impossible to do that um, once. I think that's probably common of any writers because it becomes so personal and um, editors and publishers want you to stand outside it and look at it more like it's not something you've created. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's hard like that. One of the hard things that to communicate to people is that if you're doing a reading and you have this beautiful book like Peach, which has this great orange cover with a great picture of Idaho on it, I mean, it really is an attractive book. And you're doing a reading and people are looking at it and it just looks like magic. But what they don't know is that it's backbreaking work to be a writer. And it's not glamorous. A lot of times you're in your underwear and you're sweating <laughs> and your back hurts and you can't talk to people. And, you know, like someone asked me once, what's the hardest part about writing? And I said, the hardest part about writing is not being able to write. Like if you're working on something and you have to go to work or, yeah. you know, you're working on something and you have to go out and you want to just stay in and do it. And then when you stay in and you do it, it's backbreaking work. How did you find um, the the process? I mean, because I think the perception is is that like you know you're drinking tea by a window and elegantly writing, but it really isn't like that. No, it's not. And like I said, it, it is a strange thing because if you're fortunate enough to write anything that you think someone else is going to be interested in, and you have the time to be able to do that and and the application, there's such. I don't know if it's the same for you, but I almost feel guilty the entire time that I've got the time to do it. Do you know, like, I'm sat uh. down here, I've got this opportunity, and I'm going to write something now. Um, you know, the, there's this blank canvas that I've got, and I can write anything, and and I I just feel guilty. Do you know, there's, there's, that, there's that overriding thing of everyone else has got to um, work really hard outside. They're doing the the real world jobs that make the world go around. And I guess writing does as well in its own way, because that's the escapism for, for most of us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a strange thing and, it, and it's not glamorous, but I mean, this is a very first world problem, isn't it? That we're complaining yeah. about because it's a, a, a very artistic one as well, because it's like, Oh my God, I mean, how tough is it to create? And how are these people got this um, interpretation that we're just sat sipping champagne and, eating caviar while we're typing the letter um, T and then putting a semicolon after it, you know, <laughs> and then that's it for the day. It's, it, and, you know, and, but yeah, sometimes the, the toughest thing in a day is, is procrastinating over punctuation. You know, don't get me wrong. It's those, those kind of things that, you know, do make the difference sometimes to the point that you're trying to make. It's not a glam for me. It's certainly not a glamorous thing, and, and sometimes it's an arduous process as well. Because I mean, you can write, as particularly with fiction. I don't know if it's a, the same kind of. I guess it, it is. If there's a, a turn of phrase that anyone's looking for in any line of work as a writer, if there's a particular sentence that you're trying to get out of yourself, 
and you're not quite there, but you don't know how to articulate. You don't know how to articulate anyway, and you don't know how to get to that path. Sometimes it may take it may take five or six days of solid writing, an absolute bunch of nonsense to get to that one golden line or that one golden paragraph that says everything that you want to say. And, you know, that's the payoff, isn't it? That's the glamorous part for, for us. And, and no one ever sees that because then what, what you've got is the, uh, the neurosis and the paranoia that whoever picks that thing up and when they read it, they, they're reading it for that payoff and you want them to come back to you and say, oh, wow, I read that entire thing. And then when I got to page 112 and I read that thing, that one line it summed everything up for me and that's kind of what you're going for the entire time no matter what you're writing if it's if it's an article that's going to be posted online there's always something in there i think that you want to resonate with someone and you want them to come back and you want everyone who reads it to come back and tell you that don't you really that's the ego part of it and that's that's really for me that's as glamorous as it gets isn't it because that's the big ego boost that we get from people but you know, how rare is that? How rare does that moment come? And also there's that thing where when you write the thing that you're so proud of, whether it's a sentence or a paragraph, you're like, I, for me, I, I remember writing some stuff where I went, I don't care if a girl ever kisses me again, I have this. And then, <laughs> right, there's moments where you write something that you that you know is terrible and you just, your soul turns black. I mean, it really is an emotional exercise. Oh yeah, I mean it's cathartic, but it's also yeah, it is draining as well. And it, often you find that um, something that you weren't anticipating was going to be relevant, or, or particularly something that you might thought might resonate with someone. So sometimes those things do. It's it's an odd thing because I mean, and that that's the journey of anyone, and we find it as readers as well. Is that these odd things stick out to us and they can strike us at any moment. And I think with Peach, <laughs> without wanting to say that crowbarred these kind of things in, I didn't because it's a very emotional journey. I think that, that and, and maybe it was because it was an emotional journey for me writing it, is that there were, there were a lot of moments in there um, that were like that for me. You know, I, I found a lot of things in there that I was proud of, but also a lot of the beta readers who who have you know put their eyes over it for me before it has been published came back saying loads of nice things that were you know weren't particularly intended to come across in a certain way but they they interpreted um certain comments or conversations or points in conversations where you know where they took something different from it and i guess I, yeah, that's a compliment to the the layered side of the 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 narrative and the the storyline that I was going for, I guess. But I think that's the that's the hope that we have as writers, isn't it? Really, at the end of the day, it's not only that we get that one thing that's pleasing to us; it's that everything that we write really is meaningful to someone who reads it. Um, you're not going to strike gold with every word and every sentence, but and sometimes it's the pursuit of that moment that, you know, the anticipation where you're building up to it is sometimes even better. Um, yeah, it's, it is a, it's a funny old world for, to, to be a writer and, and this sort of masochism that goes in, <laughs> into it and the, and the big, 
I don't want to say it's like a big ego trip the entire time, but you know, it, it kind of is sometimes when when you are. First of all, as a fiction writer, really, it's it's completion of the story that you're going for, and does this fit with the story? And you want to have those big bang moments, but um, yeah, it's um, it's an odd one sometimes, but is <laughs> the way it is. <laughs> well, I it's funny because when I, reading Peach, which I loved by the way, I just love the book. Um, Thank, and Thank you. I was reading it, and I was thinking to myself, um, you know, how I kept thinking like. Is he Chris Christopherson? He's kind of like Cash. He's sort of like – and I, it kept shifting in my brain. There was this kind of roulette wheel of what sort of archetype singer-songwriter he reminded yeah. me of. And I realized he's a composite of like all those guys. Um, yeah. And when you were writing that character who you clearly had a tremendous affection for um, – when you were writing him, did you have the same experience or did you have a fixed – guy in mind that was had inspired that character no do you know what, what's funny is like those guys you just mentioned like obviously johnny cash you're gonna probably find the the person that i'll come to in a minute that i'll, that I'll tell you about who not that he was based on that but i drew my inspiration from but you do find that particularly with the the beta readers when i was sending it out everyone likes to cast people don't they as you know, oh, this person would be great if this was a movie. And I get that's a compliment. That's a massive compliment because it means that what you've written is vivid enough that people are picturing it, which is always the, the first thing. But I never do that with the characters that, that I'm, uh, apart from the Louise character, I always thought Catherine Keener would be a brilliant Louise. Yeah, that's great. That's great. She's just the perfect Louise. And yeah. and. I, and and I can't shift fr- away from that. So and that's why I never try and do that for anyone else. Because if I thought um, if it ever got made into anything, then if it's anyone other than Catherine Keener, and and apologies if it ever does get made into anything, and someone listens back to this, and Catherine Keener isn't Louise, then I'm sure they did a great <laughs> job. But um, with Hal, what I always thought was, and um, it's funny because I read. Go set a watchman after I wrote my first draft of Peach. Um, I always thought of Hal as Atticus Finch, he's just a perfect character who is just goodness personified. And the, the characteristics of him being a, a rock star and everything like that. I mean, Chris Christopherson, yeah, I thought, yeah, maybe even Meatloaf as well, that sort of old kindly guy. My aunt who, who read it said James L. Jones, you know, there are a lot of great, I mean, He's he's um I I just thought he was the nicest person in the world. Do you know what I mean? He was like everyone's grandfather, and then the music career was a secondary thing. And I I think as time has gone on, and I've looked back at it because I mean it's like a couple of years since I finished the first draft. Really, is that as perfect as he was? There's also something tragic about him as well, and. I guess it's endearing that I mean, you sort of, I guess as time goes on, you you do look back and you see different characteristics in, you know, these people that you've written. But yeah, he's, he's such a rich, good hearted person. And I think that for me was, um, it was essential for Hal that he, he was, there was no badness within him. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that's, um, probably one of the most important things I tried to put across in the book. 
Well, you you tackle some pretty big themes. I think you tackle all of the big themes, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, grief, mortality, honesty, um, those are all, uh, you know, self-deception, deception. I don't want to give too yeah. much away. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of uh, very surprising moments and explorations of those themes uh, in, in this book. Um, but you also tackle the idea of relevance, artistic relevance. And that really was particularly interesting to me because it's not something that's written about that much, um, though, of course, it has been, but not not a lot. And this idea you know, of how late stage in his career um, – trying to figure out what, what do you do next? And I, and I was always sort of wondering this, and as I'm getting older, I think about it even more so, but an exit strategy for an artist seems like something that they don't think about. <laughs> and, and I understand why. Um, but I look at Drake, for example, and I think, can Drake be Drake until he's 70? I don't think so. He's going to have to figure something out. Um, yeah. Eminem is a good example of someone who hasn't figured out an exit strategy because the guy's almost 50 and he's still doing the same thing with the same, there's no evolution artistically. And it's dangerous, I think, to do that because you got to play that character forever. There's a reason why David Bowie, you know, wasn't uh, Ziggy Stardust, you know, yeah. in his 60s. So um, this is the longest question in the world, Wayne, but I'm almost there. Oh. Um, so the idea of attacking the the theme of artistic relevance what was your approach to that and why was that the one that you chose to put the spotlight on for this book i think because there was a, a common theme in there for freddie was very young and starting his career and hal was at the end and i thought how interesting it is like i said there there are artists who and it's not just consigned to to musicians, but actors as well. If they get typecast and, and things like that, that how is there a pressure to redefine ourselves? You know, creativity in a creative um, frame. I, and I, you know, it's something even as writers. You know, do we have to evolve? Do we have to move away from the thing that made us good? Are we? Is it less? does it mean less if we can't change or, you know, do we have to be something different every time we create? Um, for, for how, I mean, like you said, Johnny Cash earlier, and I always envisioned him uh, is very basic as sort of Johnny Cash in the sixties. And then the Johnny Cash hurt, you know, in the hurt video, that's how I pictured him today kind of thing. Right. Um, and did he change? Yes, he did. He was less boombastic you know there was obviously none of the energy anymore because he was old and for freddie for hal it was more like a personal thing because he wondered if he was relevant at all and perhaps the thing that's missing from peach or maybe it's not um elaborated on enough is that there hasn't been an awful lot of recording for hal since the 1970s so since his peak so maybe he's released two or three albums in the meantime. He hasn't been prolific or anything like that. So his struggle with his sort of professional identity um, is more about chasing the past, whereas Freddie's is, um, Freddie was a protagonist, is is more about what does this mean, what I'm doing? 
do you know, it, is it going to mean anything to anyone? Is, is this my imprint on the world? Whereas how is he's kind of at peace, he's kind of at peace with that. But he, um, you know, as we learn in this, the story pretty early on that it's more like he, he wants, he's, he's curious about himself and it's not so much that um, it's, it's kind of like a, an itch that he wants to scratch. It's not this deep, um, from a professional um, standpoint anyway, it's not this massive um, thing that motivates him to, to keep getting up in the morning. But um, with Freddie, he's very much, um, you know, this 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 print, why are we here? What are we creating? Um, is, is this my legacy kind of thing? And I, I think the kind of sad thing from... Not, it's not really sad from Hal's point of view because he doesn't see it that way. But this idea that a lot of old-time singers who release newer records and it sort of not lessens what they've done, but you know, people look at it and say, oh, well, that's not as good as what they used to do. It's like they're you know, maybe chasing something, you know, what they, they used to have, as if it discredits what they, they once did. In a certain, you know, it's a strange way of looking at it, I guess. But um, I just thought to have two people at the opposite ends of the spectrum in such a changing industry as well um, and environment. Because I mean, they're, they're also born into completely different environments. Hal's interpretation of celebrity and and being a rock star means something completely different to Freddie's, what Freddie's going into. I mean, Freddie's got a more idealistic view of it. It's not tainted by the idea of, oh, we're all on um, talent contest shows and everything like that. And um, he's still trying to do something through the, what he considers to be the, the more artistic merit route, you know, of, of trying to do it himself and everything like that. But I just found, not that he, I, I guess you you may see it a little bit differently having read it, but I I didn't see that as too major a theme in the story. Only that it was a common ground for them, um, even if it was at polar ends and and completely different. Um, it's just a completely different environment, isn't it? For the the kind of musical environment in the seventies compared to today, the. They might as well be two different industries, might they? Well, right, Ex- exactly, and th- and it's funny because I know I know it's not a primary theme of it; it's more of like a sub a sub theme mm-hmm. and something that's suggested. But it's something I, that I think about a lot, and that's probably why it struck me, um, because you know, like Glenn Campbell, you know, I mean, yeah. when, at the end of his career, this guy's on stage with Alzheimer's. I mean, really in late stages, um, oh, and, yeah. and, it, and, and it's really very difficult. It was difficult to watch, and it was very uh, wrenching and and moving and horrible. But you also think, like, what is it that makes an artist keep going? Um, oh, yeah, and, and to, to say Glenn Campbell as well. That the song that he did, that I'm not going to miss you. Yeah, I think that's the thing that transcends the the topic of what we're talking about because we're talking about artistic merit and what do what do these things mean to us personally and to the wider public? Whereas that that particular song, and I guess it's uh, representative of his, of his performances as well, 
it's a statement on on itself that transcends music. It's it's so moving. It means something so much more than oh, that's not what he used to sound like. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't that doesn't matter what he used to sound like because this is a piece of art by itself that is so incredible and it's it says everything about in a completely different way to his earlier work, it's you know it's one of my fi- well possibly my favorite Glenn, Glenn Campbell track that I just and it just moves you for a completely different reason to anything really. Do you know what I mean? And that those those are the kind of things that become not about music; they become about a single creation, if, if that makes sense. If you know where I'm coming from, it's an, an actual an actual single creation, which is something to be taken in that isolation and considered on those merits. And you just go, wow, it just blows you away. Yeah. It's incredibly, um, incredibly uh, resonant emotionally. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like with, with Hal, uh, you know, I kind of feel like if, that Hal has a kind of peace about him that many artists don't manage to get. And, you know, I mean, some artists, they keep touring because they have to. They keep touring because they, you know, people aren't buying records anymore and they don't have a retirement plan and they're not the Beatles and they don't have an estate that keeps making money. Um, yeah. So they have to keep going out there and and touring. I always think of Echo and the Bunnymen when I think about this because they're still out there. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I'm glad that they are. But I also wonder sometimes for those who don't even need to be out there, those who don't need the money, they – they're still out there. I mean, and I wonder like with Hal, Hal has managed this piece where if this thing doesn't work out with Freddie, I think he'd be okay with it. You know, yeah. I, I think, I think he's in that place where he, the guy is completely moved on from, from yeah. what he had, you know, sort of um, become known as he's divorced himself from that. And absolutely. And I think that is when, um, it's, it's kind of like what people say when when you don't look for love, that's when it arrives. I think that's where Hal is with his creativity. So it doesn't really matter to him, but it also liberates him in the way that he can create something brilliant, or he can he can talk with such deepness that um, with such depth. Sorry that um, that it, it does like like I say it's just liberated him completely and it's funny that we we talk about this and we talk about um the Glenn Campbell song um funnily enough um as you know Charles Baker you maybe want to come to this a little bit later on but it, it just it's something that struck me um Charles Baker has been writing and recording a soundtrack for it we wrote a song called The Road and this was intended to be one of those songs that Hal and Freddie worked on it's for the soundtrack and and I didn't think anything of it for you know while while Charles was away recording it because I was in Manchester and he was in LA doing that and I always envisioned it oh well this it could sound a little bit like Bruce Springsteen's The Wrestler do you know that that wonderful sort of it sounds like it's the last song of a career yeah and you know um, John Prine's um, latest song Summer's End something like, I, I can't remember the exact name of it, but he, he shot this video for it, which is, is beautiful. And, and Charles sent me the track and he said, think of it as that John Prine or, or Bruce Springsteen kind of thing. And, or he said John Prine and I thought Bruce Springsteen. And he sent it through and it was just absolutely incredible. It does sound like that, you know, a, bit, a little bit like that 
it could be the statement song, the last thing that you ever hear them sing. You know, a little bit like Johnny Cash Hurt. It's the last thing that you think of because it's so powerful. And, yeah, it's strange how those kind of things work, but it, it, it just sounds like it could be that exactly in that genre of, or that, that sort of lineage of song of Johnny Cash Hurt or Bruce Springsteen, the wrestler. It's got that kind of vibe about it, and it's just weird it's just weird but it's so and it made me think of how and as charles has done with the soundtrack by the way it's made me it made the story come to life in a different way for me i was almost like a reader again of my own story because charles was helping me engage with these different emotions of of it um because i wasn't privy to the recording process at the time and yeah it was just absolutely blew me away um i wish i could play it for you now um I mean, you'll hear it soon enough but it was it was just incredible absolutely incredible you'll no, see what sounds, i mean it sounds amazing and, and it has and those kinds of songs you're talking about they have a kind of valedictory feel to them they feel like this is it um yeah. i want to talk a bit about charles because i was in touch with him a little bit years ago um he for the the listeners may not know this but charles baker is the he played skinny pete on breaking bad oh, yeah and he was kind enough to give Stereo Members Magazine his top 10 uh, favorite albums of all time. The guy likes a lot of Pink Floyd, Wayne. Did you know that? He, he likes everything. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's incredible. He's, yeah. He's, uh, I Just, know he's from Texas, and I know that he's a musician. And um, I think two Pink Floyd albums appeared in his top 10. Yeah, he could be from anywhere, though. He, he's, he literally is a soul of the world he belongs to the world do you know what i mean he's he's been everywhere um his his influences you know like i said pink floyd he's into the beatles a lot he's always talking about um different artists he's always said you know telling me have you heard such and such i heard this new song do you know and yeah he's his music taste is so eclectic and it just puts mine to shame do you know what i mean he's, he's incredible the, the things that he knows it's just, for for someone who like i said was raised in texas is um he knows everything <laughs> he's great like that how did you um get together with him and how did this project in terms of the collaboration how did that happen okay so um we watched um breaking bad i, I was um I'm friends with the musician Pete Young, so we were flying out to Hollywood to to meet him in um, to, to hang out with him in 2014. And around the same time, we what my wife and I binge watched Breaking Bad, and she uh, we'd never seen it before, so we were very late to that, by the way. So it was like 2014, a year after it ended, we binge watched the entire thing, and. Um, my wife is as she is the the cajoler and the the person to really put the the rockets up me to to actually motivate me to do any work. She was looking on IMDb for, for people to work with from the show, and she was like, "Oh, you should contact Aaron Paul." I say, "Yeah, Aaron, have you seen Aaron Paul? You know, he's fifty million followers and stuff like that. He's not going to be. I'm a soccer ghostwriter from from the UK, and um, but." She also looked at Charles's profile on IMDb, and he said something like, "Charles has lived a life that people write stories about, and oh, that most people write stories about." And she said, "You should try and contact Charles." And I thought, "Oh, I don't know." And then 
I just looked him up on Twitter and he was very engaging with fans and everything like that. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll try, you know, what's the worst that could happen? He could say no. I just, I said, um, you know, hey, would you follow me for a moment? So so we had a little chat on, on DM and I said, oh, I'm I'm a writer from the UK and, um, you know, I've done some soccer writing, but I'm a massive fan of yours and, you know, I'm coming to Hollywood in a few weeks and if we, you know, I'd love to talk to you about possibly working on a on a book and it turned out that he'd done he'd, he'd been to he was an army brat and he'd, he'd spent some time in high wickham in england and he would played a little bit of soccer and um i think it was the fact that i was from the uk all and that was a writer that intrigued him so he agreed to the meeting and um you know thankfully he said you know once we the, the meeting went very well it was a surreal thing for me because I'd never had a meeting out in LA before and, and it went very well and we agreed to work together on his um, on his autobiography. And like I said, that was 2014, and when, November 2014. So we started working together on that and the book isn't out yet, but I've got to tell you when that comes out, that is just, his story is just, it will blow you away. It's an incredible, his life is just, Wow. Uh, you know that's for a completely different show that is incredible i'm sure charles would be happy to talk to you about it himself but it, it, you know a great guy and then obviously at the same time as as you know as i said around that time i've been writing peach and after i'd written the first draft um charles had sent me in, in the process of us working together he just sent me um some school uh, some songs he did um that he'd written and recorded himself just to say, oh, look, this is something that I've done. I did a while back, um, not to share or anything, but this is, you know, I was in a high school band and everything like that. Um, these weren't from his high school. I think these were later in life um, that he'd recorded these, but, you know, he was a singer and he was a, like I say, he was in bands and everything like that. And he just said, oh, have a listen to these. Um, so I did. And I thought, you know, he it was a great performer and very emotional the way that he, um, particularly his acoustic songs um, were very, very, they're very powerful. And I thought, I guess the idea of being in there, uh, he sent those by the way, pretty early on in our working relationship. So probably around four or five months into our working relationship, I got those songs and the idea probably came to me about a year later after that. And I, I just reached out to him because it had been like a, a bug eating away, I thought, well, after I'd finished the first draft of Peach, I thought, and I'd written some songs anyway to, to sort of go in there. There were songs that I'd had, like say, with my G and E minor chords on, on different <laughs> on different capos, though, so it makes all the difference. Um, so I, I, I guess I, what it was, I, I just took a punt, really, as much as I did in... in asking him if he wanted to work together in the first place. I said, Charles, do you know, like you, you're a great singer. You can play, you know, you can play obviously. Um, would you be interested in, in, in perhaps performing some of these songs for the soundtrack? And he, he was like, Oh yeah, that sounds great. He was very into it from the start. And, um, we actually worked together on a few of them. Um, but I, mean, I think most of it is, um, I mean the basic, um, basic way of explaining it is I, I wrote the lyrics and I sort of wrote a bass structure for the chords, but he's taken them. The lyrics are mostly the same, but the, the chords are 
um, probably 50-50 changed around and the musical arrangements and everything like that are he's sort of taken that to a different level. He's just the job that he's done is incredible and he becomes not that he's obviously he's not a character in the book in in any way, but he's almost become like a character. Do you know what I mean? The way that he's brought it to life is, it makes me see like, I guess you would see either Hal or maybe even Tyler as a character in the book as someone who's performing these songs. Do you know what I mean? That's what it feels like to me when I'm I'm listening to them, um, and that was yeah, like I said, two years ago maybe, and we've been working on it bit by bit ever since then and. But it's a very surreal thing to see this guy who's so talented working on something that I, I've put together and then we've put together and and see it come to life in that way. And it's just something that I never dreamed of, really. And, well, I obviously did dream of it, but I never thought of it as being a possibility before I asked. And um, it's just made the... Regardless of... I mean, I hope that... Obviously, I hope that it resonates with readers and that readers love it and everything like that, but... For me, it's so fulfilling as a creative body of work. Do you know what I mean? To look back and say, wow, I can enjoy that. <laughs> I can enjoy the record as well, do you know? And instead of, I guess a lot of writers don't read their, their own books, and I'm kind of like that. Once I'm done with it, I don't tend to go back. Um, but I've actually got something now that I, you know, like the soundtrack, I can listen to it, you know, and it's really, really adds this extra dimension to it. I think I want to do a soundtrack for every book now because you spoiled me so much. How does it work, Wayne? Are you going to release the soundtrack like with the book? So if you buy the book, you get the soundtrack or is it a download code? Or how does it work? We're working on that at the moment. I know at the very least, um, I don't think we'll do a physical download, but it will be a, definitely be, a, um, sorry, a physical copy. It'll be a definite down, download though. Um, probably primarily from the publishers at uh, Fish Out of Water Books. You'll be able to download it from their website. Um, we're still working on things like iTunes. Um, I'm, I'm pretty certain, I don't want to say for definite, but I think Charles is possibly, possibly might release a video for one of the songs as well, you know, maybe the, the, the lead song from the, from the record as well. Um, so, yeah, there'll be a few av- avenues of getting it. Um, so, yeah, watch this space for that. Good. Now, tell me uh, what you're working on now. What's what's the latest project for you? Are you, are you back in the trenches writing? Yeah, I actually um, just started writing the, the sequel to Peach. I've written the next in the series, which is called Green, but that's more of a prequel. It tells the story of Hal and his, um, and his marriage um, without wanting to give too much away to anyone who hasn't read Peach. Right. Um, so so that's that's already written i think that will be the, the next in line to be published um and, and um yeah i started writing the sequel to peach which is a direct sequel to that um which will be called orange and i, I literally started that on wednesday um so a couple of days ago as of this um as of this conversation so yeah it was a bit strange to go back because it's been three years since or two years three years since I started writing these characters properly in a novel and then a couple of years since I finished that, that first draft. So it's a bit strange to go back and start their story again. I've, I've got about seven different, you know, um, introductions for it so far. I'm not quite sure how I start with that. Um, in other, in other work, I mean, I had, um, just yesterday, this is crazy how things work in, in publishing. 
I had a book that was released earlier this year in February, um, a, fi- a non-fiction book, a soccer book, which did very well. And yesterday I found out, this, this is how I found out. I'll, um, I did a Twitter search for the book. I do it every sort of three weeks, you know, to see if it's got any new reviews or any new comments so I can say thank you if, if I've missed it. Um, and it turns out that yesterday it was released in Polish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was released to the Krakow Book Fair as well. And I was like, okay, so that's the thing that happened. <laughs> so I contacted the publisher. I said, hey, did, you know, the book's out in Polish now. And he said, yeah, 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 we'll send you one over. I'm like, okay, well, at least they're saying nice things about it, which is a good thing. Which um, <laughs> is just absolutely crazy. Like that, that's, uh, things can happen where nothing's happening for months, and then everything happens all at once. And um, I've also been working this, and this is a strange way of how, how these things work, really. So that was a, a soccer book, and I've been also working on another soccer book, which um, will have a film accompanying it with um, one of the major broadcasters over here for sports, and that that's coming out in December. But through the process of that, um, they got a host for it, a non a non sport host, and they actually got. I don't. You may. You probably will have heard of him, um, a poet called John Cooper Clark. Sure, of course. And they got him to do the introduction for it, and wow. So yeah. So well, he does the narration. So that not that he will be speaking over it, but he's doing the you know the small clips between the other clips, um, and yeah. So he would. We basically got him to work in this. Um, in this old working man's club, the Moth Club in Hackney in London. And um, the, the broadcaster got me down to, to, you know, just to see the filming for the day. So, um, yeah, it was a very strange experience to say that, you know, on this soccer film that we were working on, which is strange enough, like it's based on one of the, a book that I've written, for that to be happening anyway, and to be working as a producer on that and then, so through through that connection to be working with John Cooper Clark, who I live in Salford now or near Salford, um, and he's you know famously from there, and he's just incredible. I mean, he's yeah, he's an idol of many many creative people, and he's such um everything that you imagine that he is like as an individual, he is. He's just, he's just an incredible person to work with, and it's just weird how, you know, this this sporting film ended up with this this incredible wordsmith as um you know as a narrator on it, and just an absolute pleasure to work with him. It's like one of those things, really. I wasn't sure that it was going to happen. They said that they were in touch with him to do it, and then they said, probably last minute, they said, "Oh, would you like to come down and." and see the filming and, and get to meet him and everything like that. I was like, yeah, of course I would. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy. I can't come down. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I, yeah, I think I flew all the way down. Yeah, yeah, Johnny. exactly. Um, well, all is well in your world. Uh, congratulations on this book, Wayne. It's so great. And, you know, it's it to me, it is a modern classic in the rock and roll uh, novel genre, but also just as a marvelous book of fiction and – it's incredibly moving, really powerful, um, and it's one of my favorites of the year. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is so kind. Thank you very much.
Well, there you go. A great conversation with Wayne Barton, a very, very likable guy. I, uh, I enjoyed that chat. Now, for all Wayne Barton-related information, just go to waynebartonbooks.com or hit his publisher's site. That's Fish Out of Water Books. They can be found at fowbooks.com. As for me, I can be found at alexgreenonline.com, and you can also find me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor, or on Instagram, Ember's Podcast. Now, if you want to email me a guest suggestion for the show, please feel free to do that. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. It doesn't matter how big or how small you think that guest is, I will find them, and I will put a microphone in front of their face and just start asking them questions. I will. I will do that for you. Uh, now do something for me. If you wouldn't mind, go to iTunes and subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Subscribe to Bombshell Radio. And hey, maybe leave us a rating, maybe some kind comments. They go a long way because enough of those and suddenly Apple's like, oh, I see Stereo Embers, the podcast is hanging out with all the cool kids. They must be a big deal. And the next day I get a knock on the door and you know what's there? That's right. Bags of money. That's how podcasting works, my friends. All right, let's close things off with Charles Baker doing a song from the Peach soundtrack. This is End of Time, recorded live in Los Angeles at the last bookstore. Enjoy it right here, and I'll see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. set of eyes will see it differently you say I'm sorry that I said I'm sorry that I stayed for you oh this is the end of time and since the end of time I've been fine I've been Since the end of time, 
I've been